This is episode 62 of Cinescope. And Fred, if you're real, you better tell me right now. Welcome to Cinescope, where our goal is not to criticize or to assign ratings, but rather to celebrate the movies we love, exploring story, characters, music, and relevance to the world around us. I'm your host, Chad Hopkins, and joining me today is Seth O'Neill to talk about one of our favorite films, I Am Legend. Seth, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing great. It might be a little late, but it's all right. Yeah, it's a little late. It's not too much, though. Uh, we both got back from a fun weekend in Austin, Texas this past weekend. We saw two of our very best friends, two former Cinescope guests, Melanie and Andrew, are now engaged or are now <laughs> married and they are off on their honeymoon in Europe. So it is just the two of us here hanging out and uh we're we're back on the work grind while they're off enjoying themselves in uh historical places on the other side of the world. Those punks. Yeah, those punks. How dare they? <laughs> Uh, but I'm so we're we're both so happy for them. Congrats to both Andrew and Melanie, two of our very best friends. Um, we wish both of you the best in the future. And uh, now let's just go ahead and get into this episode, which is a little bit different because this could technically this could technically qualify as our first live episode of Cinescope because I'm not planning on editing this a whole lot to be honest. We're using a single microphone. We're sitting in my living room. And uh, we just thought it'd be a little bit of a different way to do the podcast in a fun way, hopefully. We'll, we'll hope it turns out pretty good. Always good to try something different. Yes, for sure. Real quick, Seth, before we get into our movie discussion, how about you reintroduce yourself, remind everybody who you are, and then we will talk about our movie. Yeah, uh, so uh, I'm Seth O'Neill. I am, me and Chad have been best friends since middle school. We've been inquiring together and we've grown up uh, doing all sorts of different things together. But uh, I am currently a teacher over here in the Grand Prairie area, and I've been teaching for about three years, and I majored in music business at Dallas Baptist University. So uh, last episode that I was on Cinescope was the episode where we talked about Batman Begins, and I'm excited about talk about I Am Legend. For sure. Uh, you know, now that Andrea and Melanie are off married and whatnot, you and I are probably going to be moving together sometime in the not-too-distant future. So we'll, we'll, we'll have you around a little bit more often, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> I'm definitely open to it. I'm happy about it. I mean, that's, us being roommates will make this a lot easier. Yeah, that's for sure. And with that, let's go ahead and talk about our movie, which is I Am Legend. It was released on December 14th of 2007, so just shy of 10 years ago, which is absolutely insane. Yes. It was directed by Francis Lawrence, who also directed Constantine, Water for Elephants, and the final three Hunger Games films, that is Catching Fire and Mockingjay Parts 1 and 2. The script was written by Mark Protosevich and Akiva Goldsman and was based on the original book I Am Legend by Richard Matheson. The music is by James Newton Howard, who also composes scores for Pretty Woman, Three Men and a Little Lady, The Fugitive, Wyatt Earp, Waterworld, Space Jam, The Sentinel, The Sixth Sense, Dinosaur, Unbreakable, Atlantis, The Lost Empire, Signs, Batman Begins, The Dark Knight, all four The Hunger Games films, and most recently Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them. The movie stars Will Smith, Alice Braga, Dash Mahawk, and Emma Thompson in a brief cameo at the beginning. 
So as always, Seth, what was your first experience that you remember with this movie? Honestly, I was trying to remember back to when I first saw this movie, and I couldn't put my thumb on when I first saw it or who I saw it with. So, uh, all I mean, all I can remember, I mean, 10 years ago, I'm trying to remember how, I mean, 10 years ago I was 15, so we were in high school. Yeah, this would have been our sophomore year. Yeah, so I'm, honestly, I was trying to think if we saw it together or if I saw it with my brother. I couldn't honestly remember it, but I do remember I've watched this movie several times. It's been, honestly, it was a long time since I last saw it, so kind of seeing it recently kind of gave me a new kind of, or a new perspective, I guess, of the movie. Uh, because it's been such a long time since I've actually sat down and watched it. But uh, I know that when I first watched it, I didn't have a, as much of a lens for the movie as I do now to understand kind of what the themes were, kind of what was going on, because I really just saw it for kind of a surface level of what the movie actually was. Right, and I had a pretty similar experience, and I'm not positive if I saw this in theaters either. Um, I think I might have, and honestly, I could check because I have all my movie stubs from about 2005 onwards. Um, but if I didn't see it in theaters, I probably would have first seen it on DVD rather than on TV or something else. And, um, something I wish I had known about a lot earlier on was the alternate ending, which we will talk about both endings at length, I'm sure later in the episode. Uh, but that being said, I have always enjoyed this movie. Will Smith has been one of my favorites ever since I first saw him in Fresh Prince of Bel-Air as a little middle schooler. And, it was interesting to see him playing in such a dramatic role. This was really uh, the first dramatic role that I had ever seen him in outside of Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. We've gotten others since then. Pursuit of Happiness comes to mind. Uh, But this one really stands out, and it's sort of his castaway, if you think of the Tom Hanks movie directed by Robert Zemeckis, where it's really a a one-man show for so much of the film, and he carries it so, so, so well. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, I honestly, I was thinking about that too whenever I was watching the movie, that this was, I think, one of the first major films I saw where Will Smith was a serious character and as such a serious, dramatic movie. Uh, because, again, he, had, he had, a lot of Will Smith's career for, after Fresh Prince was like Wild Wild West, Men in Black, just because those movies that were just kind of action comedy movies. Mm-hmm. So this is our first time to kind of see him in a, uh, a I guess, a raw character that mm-hmm. was very exposed and very just outcasted like it's a different role that we never saw will smith try to do so it really showed how much of a dynamic actor he was yeah and there are those little snippets of comedy throughout like the the quote at the beginning of the episode where he's yelling at fred Hmm. uh no fred no if you're if you're real you better tell me right now (laughs) and uh a couple of the moments where he's talking to sam yes those are endearing moments too but just uh you know, if you're playing a party, go ahead and tell me right now because I don't like I don't like surprises. That kind of stuff. Right. Little bits of comedy that remind us of the traditional Will Smith. But mm-hmm. on the whole, this is a very serious, very dramatic character. Yeah. And I like that turn for him. I, I, I like seeing mm-hmm. comedians turn serious because honestly, I think comedians make some of the best actors. Yeah. Because I mean, I think I th- yeah, I think comedy comedians are over, or just comedy actors in general overlooked for because we see them. We kind of put a label on them as this is what this is all they do and really they are just as good as some other actors we know that are very dramatic very serious mm-hmm. i mean we we can look at just a few i mean you have sandra bullock who turned out in gravity as a very serious actress you have matthew mcconaughey who is now uh transitioned from pretty boy chick flick star to academy award winning actor mm-hmm. um we've got several of those kind of characters uh several of those kind of actors rather and Will Smith, I don't think he's won an Academy Award yet, but I, I don't think it's not uh, 
out of the realm of possibility in his future after films like this, if he continues down this more dramatic path. Now let's just talk about the the story. So from the very start of the film, I, I love how the initial setup is just really, really powerful uh, because who doesn't want to cure cancer? I mean, right. who doesn't know somebody who was affected by cancer in some way, whether you actually knew somebody who had cancer or uh, lost their lives to cancer, or even if it's just a friend who lost somebody. So somebody by extension, it, it's an awful disease. It's an awful thing to go through. You don't wish it upon anybody. And the thought that, oh, wow, they cured cancer. Every single test we've had has been successful. That's great news. And that's all we get from the beginning from Emma Thompson's character. And you think it's successful. But as soon as she says, yes, we, we've been successful this many times, 10,000 times or however many it is, it immediately cuts to three years later subtitle and we're zooming around the streets of New York City. And it's completely ravaged and desolate. And there's nothing to be seen that reminds us of what new york should be aside from buildings mm -hmm. and it's a it's just a huge irony in the way that it, it starts off because it starts off with a sense of hope that there's no this disease will no longer impact us to the sense of holy crap what just happened <laughs> right because we don't have the whole story we yet. don't like we always see is hey here's a new story of, of us curing cancer to now hey look there's new york empty and destroyed Right. It, it, it makes you wonder what the disconnect is, like what what led from point A to point B and what happened in the middle. Um, but the, the city is empty. It's overgrown. There's abandoned cars everywhere. We see one man driving alone and he's got a gun in his lap. There's deer running wild in the city. And oh, look, lions. Lions are there, too. So it, it's completely unlike the New York that we know. It is completely unpopular. We have one person and the fact that he's driving around with an assault rifle in his lap already tells you a lot about the state of things. Yeah, and I, I think one thing that, I mean, off from the get-go that I really, I guess, respected about the film is the set design of the film. Mm -hmm. And that first opening scene shows you just the set design because it's showing you in a, I guess, post-apocalyptic New York City that is unkept, that is a mess, that is torn up, and it just sets the tone for the whole movie. Yeah. And just that one little picture. Yeah, I think that movies like this, post-apocalyptic post or um, dystopian films that put you in real settings and let you see f settings that you are familiar with, that you know what they're supposed to look like, and then they just change it and they make it completely opposite of what you expect. It makes it so much more powerful. So knowing that this is a real setting, a real place that you and I have been to, and we've walked the streets of New York before mm -hmm. uh, a long time ago also, but that's beside the point. <laughs> right. Um, it It's just so much more effective rather than something like, I mean, I love the Hunger Games films, but that's a fictional setting. And right. so we're not recognizing those settings. We don't feel the same emotional impact as if we had lived in Pan Am uh, because we haven't. Right. Um, but the environment as a whole is a great storytelling device. When we see Robert walking around and doing his daily duties and hunting and uh, scavenging for goods, we see him enter this one apartment or house or whatever it is, and there's an empty Christmas tree just left behind. It's not Christmas time, but there's a Christmas tree there. Or there's notes left outside of a room, um, and he opens the door and it's a baby room, mm -hmm. clearly unused, like something happened we don't know the whole story again 
but something happened to cause these decorations to be left behind to leave this baby room completely deserted and then there's tarps or something in another room where we don't see anything close up but we can make some assumptions based on everything else we're seeing and it's just powerful how they're able to communicate so much in this movie without just telling you right and that's the best kind of filmmaking right it kind of it kind of leaves you leaves the watcher to its own interpretation but at the same time doesn't leave it too open i guess in a way mm-hmm. it's 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 really cool that uh, a set design is able to tell the story inside of the story right so yeah it, and that just and that's just perfect I mean, that's just part of a, a well-managed team well-directed team that had a good vision of what this film should be Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> what else in the story uh, stands out to you? Um. Honestly, uh, one thing. Oh, oh, yeah. About talking about the set. There's one thing I I thought was very humorous is that uh, one of the billboards in New York City was a Batman Superman billboard. Yes, yes it was. As soon as I saw that, I was like, they predicted the future. <laughs> I don't yeah, know I, how they did it, but they predicted the future. Yeah, I don't know what the significance of that was, but it's it's the Superman symbol superimposed over Batman. So. I guess they had some future insight. I don't yeah, know. I don't know. <laughs> I, as, <laughs> I mean, soon as, as soon as I saw that, I was like, how did they know eight years or eight, eight, nine years in advance that that was happening? Like, there's no way. But that, I guess, I don't know, it was just funny. Uh, but uh, one of the things I really enjoyed uh, was the, I, I guess the, uh, the, uh, play, off the, play off the environment, but the way that, Robert interacted with the environment uh-huh. uh, because in itself, so obviously we know Robert is alone, but in, he's trying to, I guess, contain his humanity by putting things in mm-hmm. New York City that's trying to keep him kind of sane or keep him feeling his all of his human emotions that he needs to feel. Mm-hmm. So he'll put the mannequins in the street. He'll have conversations with Sam like the do- like the dog is a human. He'll take care of Sam like uh, she's a human, uh, and then. At the same time, he'll still act like no one else in the world. He'll hit golf balls off of a jet, off of a giant battleship, mm-hmm. and then he'll go. I mean, drive around as fast as he wants to down a, a abandoned street. Like so, there's just a lot of uh, the ways that he like interacts with the environment, knowing that he's alone, but at the same time not wanting to act like he's alone. Yeah, the way he's adapted to a situation, and the the use of his wristwatch sort of plays into that, where he set these alarms that warn him, hey. The, the sun is going away and that means something at the beginning we don't know what that means because mm-hmm. again we don't know what caused all this we we just know hey they cured cancer and three years later something happened and so th- at the beginning of the film we get the wristwatch alarm and he gets almost a sort of post-traumatic stress about him we don't know what's going on but he he's concerned and he acts on it he goes home he starts preparing he does this he does that and um it's just, we just know it's a warning of some kind. That's really all we know. Then the first time we see exactly why, I mean, we see him sort of cowering in his uh, house with these awful shrieking and tearing things apart sounds coming from outside. Uh, but when he wakes up to his alarm while hanging upside down, the whole movie, the, the wristwatch has been building tension. And now it's a, a true moment of tension because he's, He's snagged, he's hanging upside down, he's injured, um, it's almost completely dark, and the wristwatch is going off. So we know a whole bunch of bad things are converging in on him right now. And it's just such an effective device um, in building our own tension because we know the wristwatch means bad news. Mm. And so it, it 
becomes even more of a race against time to beat Sunset, to get back home, to get Sam into the car, to get down. All these things all triggered by the wristwatch. And it it's so much better than like a jump scare. They're really It doesn't rely... It's, it's a different kind of thriller, horror kind of stuff. It's not a scary movie, not a horror movie, and it's not in that same genre, but it brings in elements of that tension that are present in those kind of films. Right, yeah. It's, it's more of an anxiety more than a scare because mm-hmm. you're, you know what's about to happen whenever that wristwatch beeps is that there's... At the first part of the movie, like you said, at the first part of the movie, we know that the wristwatch happens and he kind of spaces out and no, all the sound kind of stops and he just hears the wristwatch and it kind of makes him... swap his mindset back to okay this is actually my reality now Mm -hmm. uh instead of instead of him just living his uh, day-to-day life normally uh but yeah the wristwatch is just a i guess a trigger for him to say Mm -hmm. crap i'm i need to remember where i am and who i'm or what is around me that can easily kill me Mm -hmm. trigger is a good word for that It, it 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 brings him back to the immediacy of the situation. Yeah. My wristwatch is going off. That means I have to act or I'm going to be screwed. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, yeah. So being in the movie, obviously we don't know what is going on. We just know the trick. We just know kind of his wristwatch triggers him. And we know the sounds. We just don't know what's making the sounds, what is going on, what caused all this emptiness in New York. But then whenever we get to the first encounter, whenever he is chasing after the deer because he wants to get meat, uh, or get I get hunt for game or hunt for the meat whatever he's wanting to do with the deer, but then whenever Sam turns into the the dark room he starts yelling going insane stops at the door and just freaks and has a heart attack because we don't know what's going on but he's about to go into a dark apartment apparently that's bad mm-hmm. but uh, knowing that when as he walks in there as he's freaking out as he's about to like pee his pants because he's that scared. <laughs> Why you're just like okay some this must this must be where they're hiding he must know where they're hiding something's uh-huh. happening, and just the camera effect of when he's going in there the flashlight him covering it checking it covering it like it's this is actually like a scary movie because mm-hmm. these are like the jump scares you're waiting for where the lights are off lights are on you're expecting something to pop up at any time right now, mm-hmm. and then whenever you finally get to the first glance of the hemocytes. Mm-hmm. They're just huddled in a circle, like breathing really rapidly, and you're just like, and it was only like a glimpse, and then he covers it up, and you can't see him again. Mm-hmm. And you, my, like, if, if you're just thinking as 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 this movie as a first time seer, you're probably just like, what the heck was that? <laughs> right. They are gray skinned, not wearing clothes, and the, I just hear a lot of breathing. Like, what uh-huh. is going on? So just the, like the first glimpse of the hemocytes kind of just leaves you with so I think more questions than anything else because mm-hmm. you're like. I don't know what this is. <laughs> right, right. Um, and throughout the film, we get these flashbacks. And it, it's one of the, those films that I think uses flashbacks really, really well. I think there's only, if you count the newscast at the beginning, four, five maybe flashbacks. You get the newscast. And I think there's three involving his family. That sounds about right. Because um, there's the first one where they're driving along. The second one where they're getting scanned in and boarding the helicopter and then the third one where the helicopter crashes crashes. and we don't actually see the crash that's another piece of effective filmmaking where they don't have to show us what is happening we know and we just feel the pain along with him because that's the moment he wakes up and it's back to his reality the reality is they're gone and so we didn't need to see them leaving he wakes up and they're gone i mean that that's it that's that's excellent uh filmmaking um 
but that there's one specific flashback the third one i believe when they're at the barriers and they're getting scanned in trying to escape um which it it's soul crushing in a lot of ways because you see people desperate to escape you see people pushing against barriers you see military sporting guns aiming at people keeping people back you see this woman who is clearly infected who has no care for herself anymore she's just trying to get her daughter safe and it's just this hope it's a scene of hopelessness where only these these super special people dr robert neville and his family are going to be able to escape um and all these other people they've got five minutes until the bridge is blown and they're trapped and it's over for them it's just such a scene of hopelessness and again it's told largely through uh, through just what we see and what we witness rather than them saying and telling us all these people like having a character say oh man all these people have no hope none of these people are going to be able to get off they don't have to tell us we just see this hopeless situation and it really kind of breaks your heart a little bit yeah it does especially whenever marley asks asks robert daddy why can't we take the little girl with us like what's the mm -hmm. problem here and you see that and you're just like i mean marley's got a point i mean come on please right but uh one thing that I was also really interested by, because in that third flashback, the whenever they're scanning the, all the people's eyes, when it comes to his wife, the first time he's, they scan her, it's a fail. Mm -hmm. Which is like, when you see that, you're like, what? She's she's infected? What happened? But then you see he requests another scan, like fights really hard, and she passes. Then whenever that happens, I'm always, in my mind, I'm like, I wonder how many of those people that are on the sideline, because they failed it, could have passed with the second one. Mm -hmm. Like how how many of those people like got that false fail and then now they're they're stuck and they're basically there to die. Yeah, like a faulty piece of equipment that yeah. could have caused the the loss of all these people. Yeah, just and just because of that one faulty thing, they now are they have a judgment on them saying you you're done. Like mm -hmm. you're, there's no hope for you. Yeah, it, it's sad. It's a sad scene. All these people are desperate and they they don't have anything to turn to, and then that culminates in that fourth flashback with the death of his wife and daughter immediately after putting them in a helicopter and presuming that they're safe. It, it it's, it tears you apart. Yeah. <laughs> it, it is just the worst. Yeah. And it, like you said before, like the thing is they don't even, they, they barely show the two helicopters crashing into each other. They just show that it's happening and then they cut it off because again, they don't have to show it. We kind of already knew it's going to happen. Mm -hmm. And they just wanted us to feel the emotion that Robert was feeling at that time. Because at that time, he saw his family get on a helicopter safely. He felt good about it. Mm -hmm. And then in a matter of seconds, it all went wrong. Yeah, we already knew they were gone. We didn't know if they were gone safe or, as it turns out, gone dead. Gone, which gone. Is the worst. <laughs> yeah. Any other story things to talk about? Or are you ready to talk more about Robert specifically? Um, Let's see. I mean, I think a lot of this we're going to, well, uh, actually, wait, no, uh, kind of skipping ahead a little bit. Uh, I'll, we'll, we'll talk about uh, Robert and Sam later, I'm sure, obviously, because that relationship is huge in this movie. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, one thing that I, th I thought was very uh, cool about the story, and that's late, it comes later on whenever he, uh, Robert meets Anna and Ethan, uh, is the first kind of light conversation between Robert, Ethan, and Anna Mm -hmm. comes whenever they watch Shrek. Right. And what I thought was really cool, I guess, to incorporate Shrek with is the scene that they started, that they watched Shrek on. Mm -hmm. And it was the scene wherever Donkey first meets Shrek and he attaches himself to Shrek and he, Shrek is like, go home, where are your friends? And Donkey's like, I don't have any friends. Mm -hmm. And I thought that it was very 
purposeful that they chose a scene because it was I thought it very much connected with the situation Robert was in. Mm-hmm. How he is a loner. He basically he was Shrek. Mm-hmm. He was he had his 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 location. He was stuck there. He's not moving there. This is his I think he called it ground zero. Mm-hmm. This is his ground zero. He's not moving there. This is his swamp. Mm-hmm. And he's st- staying there because that's what he's supposed to do. Right. He doesn't want to share it with anybody. No. Even though he was sharing it with Sam this whole time, he's a whole lot less willing to bring in somebody who's not attached to his actual family. Right. And like then, Sam is. Yeah. And then Anna and Ethan kind of c- come in kind of forcefully like Donkey because they mm-hmm. overheard the, his radio station. Now they're in his house. He woke, he wakes up to strangers in his house. Mm-hmm. And he's like, what? Are, you all need to like, well, this is my place. Get out. Right. <laughs> so like literally the exact scene that Shrek is doing, this is the, it's the exact situation that Robert was in, which mm-hmm. I thought was very, again, very purposeful, but also could be easily looked over, but is very just cool that it, it just meshes in really well. Right. I mean, it, it, it's funny. It's cute that he's just quoting Shrek line for line as it is. It's, it tells you that he's obviously watched it a lot. He has a lot of free time. Um, he doesn't have a whole lot of video choices. Uh, but it does have that extra layer of depth where you realize that Robert and Shrek are very similar to each other. And even a little bit of Donkey, because Donkey's saying, hey, I don't have any friends. Right. Um, but, it, yeah, that, that that is a good thing to point out as well. Um, now, talking just a little bit more specifically about Robert, um, lis- he, he listens to these old news broadcasts a lot while he is eating. Um, and a lot of them are talking about him. But in these news broadcasts there's they're, they're talking about snow and they're talking about children playing in the streets and it, it's a flashback to uh this much more simple much more pleasant time in his life and it's you almost wonder why he watches these old news broadcasts whether it's a reminder of his purpose or whether it's a reminder of days gone by or whether he's trying to listen for information that might help him in his quest to find a cure you never really know exactly why, but he is watching these old broadcasts from when the infection and the the spread was first beginning. Uh, I just thought it was a, an interesting character trait that he was so attached to these old news broadcasts for some reason. Yeah, and uh, whenever I watched, whenever I was thinking about, it, I, I was thinking maybe he did that because maybe that was part of his daily routine. Whenever it was just a regular day, if he'd watch the news, and that's part of his routine, so he wanted to make sure he kept that routine. Mm-hmm. But I, whenever he's, but you saying that does also make sense that he mm-hmm. he was also wanting, maybe listening for something, maybe key information that he forgot, or uh, other things that he's just trying to look out for that the news broadcast might remind him of. I think it's a little bit of all of it, to be honest. And I think the routine thing is a big part of it because we see that he's a man of routine. He goes about his day. He works out. He goes down to the lab and experiments. He scavenges. He hunts. He goes to the video store. He hangs out at the dock. He he has this set daily routine, and it's all punctuated by his wristwatch telling him, okay, it's time to go home. Um, so I think... All of that has relevance. Yes, he is listening for important information. Yes, he's remembering days gone by. Yes, he's sticking to routine. Um, so it, again, I, I, we keep driving this point home, but there's so much told in this movie without telling us. Yep. And again, that's just that. I mean, that was what makes this movie that good is that it doesn't have to have the dialogue to tell us what's happening. It shows us what ha- what's happening. Mm-hmm. And I think that's. I mean, this movie it has to do that because it wants us to make. It wants us to be put into Robert's shoes. So in his situation, he doesn't 
hear anything. Mm-hmm. So they want us to not hear anything. Mm-hmm. They just want us to see visually what he's going through. Because he doesn't have another character that he's talking to, it's not like they can give out exposition through casual conversation. And we don't want a narrator. We don't want him talking over everything and telling us, oh, this is what is going through my head, and this is why I'm doing this, and this is what my life is like. We get other character development about him through like news clippings in the background or through flashbacks or through his video logs in the lab. Um, there's a magazine lying around somewhere that calls him a savior, question mark. Um, we learn that he is a significant person in this whole event of things. He's not just some random guy who has a certain set of skills and is surviving on his own. He was part of like he says, of ground zero. It was his job to try and find a cure. And here it is three years later, and he's still sticking to his mission. He is the Dr. Rep. He is the Dr. Robert Neville, as Anna calls him later. Uh, He is a significant figure. People know him. And uh, we get all of that through these, uh, not extraneous, not, that's not the word I'm looking for, but through this additional media surrounding him. Yeah. And yeah. So a lot of people definitely think highly of him because of the news, if you look at all the news stories, like you said, it mentions him all over the place mm-hmm. because he was the one that was, I guess, everyone's expecting him to find the cure. That is what it's labeled. And on the magazine, the name Savior, whenever I looked at it, I would have to look at the movie again. But I thought that the question mark was he put the question mark on there. Oh, really? I From the way that I looked at it, it looked like he was the one that put the question mark on Savior. So I'd have to look at it again because I wanted, I wanted to double check that because I'm thinking that if he purpose, if he put it on there... I think that's him saying, am I really the savior? Am mm-hmm. I like, questioning his ability? Right. Like it's three years later and what have I accomplished? Right. That's, that's an interesting point. I'll have to go back and watch that. Cause, cause I think, cause if I, if I'm picturing it right, I thought that it looked like it was the magazine. Then next to it was like a pa- a notebook paper with the question mark on taped on there. Okay. Well, so we'll, we'll have to seek that out for sure. Um, his relationship with Sam is the driving force of a lot of the movie. And we don't understand the connection beyond just the obvious connection of man and dog. I mean, man's best friend. That's it's what dogs are. I mean, he treats Sam like an honest to goodness child. Mm -hmm. Um, He talks to her at dinner, your vegetables or you get a bath and she doesn't eat her vegetables. So she gets a bath. Uh, He bargains with her says, okay, uh, you're not in trouble as long as you eat double the vegetables tomorrow. And he's having these conversations that, I mean, a dog's not going to talk back, right? but it's another part of him trying to feel as human as he can by interacting with a child, whether that's a human child or not. It's some something for him to communicate back and forth with uh, and at least get some semblance of a response. Right. And I, and I think that, like, like I said, just a response, because obviously Sam's only response is either she's going to bark or just whine or look at him just weird. But he at least gets a response from her, uh, because I kind of going further. But we'll go like kind of fast forward of the importance of that. If you look at the time of the movie, whenever he loses Sam, his first thing is he goes to the movie store and tries to com- converse with the mannequin, but he's heartbroken because he now knows that nothing will ever ever respond back to him. Yeah, he sits there crying and says, please say hello to me. Right. Please say hello to me. Knowing and that knowing. knowing that there's no response. So it, he, it's just a heartbroken moment where he knows that I have nothing left to actually respond to. I'm the only thing that can respond to myself, and that's just depressing. Mm-hmm. You understand how much love he has for this dog when Sam runs into the darkness that first time, and 
the way he freaks out, he, I mean, he almost doesn't follow her in. It's that serious of a situation, uh, but it's because of his love for her and because of this attachment he has to her and because of the companionship that he does follow her in and rescues her in that instance. But unfortunately, that doesn't last later when he has been trapped and has fallen victim to these dark seekers and the the dark dogs attack and Sam is unfortunately infected. And we get the real significance of this relationship in that final flashback when you understand Sam is from his daughter, which we knew, but he was literally holding this dog as he watched his family die. That... <laughs> that's the, that's awful. That's like yeah. That that just shows you that Sam was the last living thing of his family. Yeah, I mean it. It was his memory. I mean he he takes uh, Sam from his daughter as she's boarding the helicopter, as he's waving goodbye, as Marley is making the butterfly symbol through the window. Sam is looking away at his face, and so these memories beyond just being a gift from his daughter, it's the very representation of his daughter and of his wife as they died while they were holding uh, while he was holding Sam. And what's what's even I guess more amazing about well, more amazing about Marley and Sam is the, the words that Marley says to Robert whenever he she gives him Sam is Sam will protect you. Mhm. And literally that is what Sam did for Robert. He, Sam protected him even to the last moment. Yeah. He protected him. That was and that's what Marley told Sam to do. Marley right. said Sam protect daddy. And that's what happened. Yeah, it, it is so sad. And you, it's like One Floor of the Cuckoo's Nest. I don't know if you've ever seen that movie with Jack Nicholson. Um, we talked about it on Cinescope once. But there's the the ending of that film is reminiscent of uh, this ending with that relationship where it's like a mercy killing. And it's, it's so sad. It's so tear-jerking. I the the moments with sam in this movie just like break my heart every time i watch and part of it is because we don't deserve dogs dogs are these special innocent loving animals and we understand that connection because everybody has had a connection with a dog whether you owned a dog or not everybody has had a connection with a dog at some point in their lives and understand uh the the selflessness that a dog exercises so much of the time and knowing that Sam was no longer Sam and that Robert was having to take her life to protect her from herself. Um, it's just, it's depressing. It, it had to be done, but that is one of the toughest scenes to watch in a movie. I think where he is struggling, he is trying not to cry. Well, he is crying. His face is all twisted up as he's struggling with this creature and uh, slowly taking the life from her it's it's tough yeah and it, yeah it's again and they don't show they don't show the actual action happening they show it's it, the sound by the sound and by the emotion and by the scratching that's happening and the, by the gnawing but you, it's just you all it is is his face showing the emotion of he he's taking her life mm -hmm. and, and it, it's and again it, and he's taking her life because she's no longer sam She's mm -hmm. now a dark a dark hound or dark dog, whatever you call, want to call those things. Mm -hmm. But again, it's just as that that whole moment of building up to it, as he injects her with hoping that it'll cure her. He's petting her, like sing singing the song Mar Bob Marley song to her, 
don't worry about a thing. Everything's going to be all right. But then at the same time, realizing her hair's falling off, her eyes are going and uh, getting injected or getting infected, her mouth's infected, just realizing that it's too late. Mm-hmm. And then he ultimately just the whole just zoom in on his face of him just choking. Right. I, w- I was about to mention that as well. That slow reveal of we, we understand what is about to happen, but the slow reveal that it is actually happening bit by bit from the eyes to the teeth to the hair. And then finally to that moment of aggression where Sam is finally turned and starts to lunge at his face and then it's over. Um, now, we, we talked a little bit about how prideful Robert is. He won't leave the city because he feels this responsibility for Ground Zero. He says, I can still fix this. He's the only man in the city. And it's been three years. What is he going... What is there to fix? It's it's just a sense of pride at this point. He is the Dr. Robert Neville. Not that I think he thinks overly highly of himself. I don't think he's pompous. But I think it's like a sense of duty to his family at this point. Um, they died with him in charge of this uh this area this he had this duty to the people of the world to the people of new york city to his wife to his daughter to cure this disease and so they died because of this disease and so he's going to do everything he can to stop this disease uh at all costs right and i think that's ultimately what he what's his driving force is his family because mm-hmm. if he stops his research then their death means nothing Right. He wants his family's legacy to be his legacy. Mm-hmm. So he wants to make sure that he doesn't stop because he needs to keep going to make to make his family proud, to make everyone know that he was the actual savior that people were hoping him to be. Mm-hmm. And Aunt Anna, uh, when she shows up in his life and she tries to convince him to leave, he, he shuts it down. He's He's given up at this point. Sam is gone. He doesn't know what to do with his life. He's already tried to kill himself. But still, he doesn't want to leave for any supposed survivor's colony. This is ground zero. This is my site. I can still fix this. Um, Again, he's lost everything at this point. There's literally nothing holding him here anymore except for his pride and his uh, self-imposed duty to his family. And I think he feels guilty about that uh, excuse of Ground Zero, but I think the reason he keeps saying that is because that's the exact words he said to his wife whenever they were leaving. He was, he was telling her, no, this is Ground Zero. I have to stay here. You guys need to go. And I think because he said that, because that was his excuse for his wife and, ch- and daughter to go, he has to keep with that excuse because he doesn't want to change it from what the reason why he sent away his wife and kid. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I hadn't thought about that. The, the parallel... Uh, and not wanting to betray the same promise that he made to his wife and the reason he wasn't with them when they died. Uh, I, that's that's really good. <laughs> I like that a lot. Um, and we should at least, we should mention the fact that he does try to commit suicide. The, the complete loss, the complete absolute hopelessness he feels when Sam is gone. He's burying her and he's swallowing pills. He decides, well... There's nothing left anymore. And he does try to kill himself. He does try to leave. Um, But then we get Anna to step in. And she does step in at the last possible moment and saves his life. But it's just tough to see this man who is so well thought of, who has such a high level of responsibility, who has survived so far on uh, his own with Sam at this point, uh, only to be so affected by this loss that he is willing to throw all of it away in an instant. 
Right. And it, I mean, that just shows the impact of what Sam's death meant to him because I think, uh, I mean, once, once you're by yourself at that point, you're lonely and he, he was convinced that everyone is dead. Mm-hmm. He was dead set because he's been sending out a radio broadcast every day. Hey, I'm going to be at this place at this time. Survivors come. I'm here. Please. I'm here for you. I want to save you. I want to keep you safe. And no one came for three years. Mm-hmm. I mean, at this point, he kept going to the dock just because that was routine. Right. But at this point, he's convinced there's no one else out there. So now, he, I mean, his mindset is I'm the only one in the world. Why is what's the point of me finding a cure if it's not going to help anybody? Mm-hmm. All it is going to do is I'm going to be by myself still, and I, this could go, keep going on for years and years, and I'm not going to get any progress. So, mm-hmm. I mean, he literally is in the mindset of nothing matters anymore. Right. Why should I bother? Mm-hmm. And but, so he he releases his anger just saying, you guys killed my dog. I'm just going to kill as many of you as I can, even if it takes my life. I don't care. Right. Um, and then, as mentioned, Anna does step in with Ethan. And Anna is this tough woman. She is resourceful. She is hopeful. She's full of hope. She is this character who believes in a higher power. She believes that there's a plan for her life, for Robert's life, for uh, what has happened to the world. And she is acting on it. Unlike Robert in this instance, where he's just given up on everything because things have not gone his way. Uh, Obviously, things have not gone her way either. She was on a Red Cross ship and... It got infected and five survived. And now of all of those people, she's one of two. She's got herself and she's got Ethan. And things have not gone her way. But here she is still thinking, hopefully, still being optimistic, still seeking out a refuge and other survivors so that they can basically start life anew. And she believes in this. And Robert is hesitant at first, but through her optimism and through other things that we will talk about in a minute, um, she is able to bring him around and convince him that there is something out there with a greater plan and that all you have to do is listen. Right. And I, the one word I, I whenever I, whenever Anna comes in the picture, I said it was refreshing mm-hmm. because in this situation, like as we are experiencing this whole, whole, uh, situation with Robert, we feel that he is lonely. We feel the darkness. And as soon as he's in the car by himself about to basically get torn apart, just light light comes out of nowhere and he's take pulled out. He's driven to safety. And then he just, there's just this refreshing environment that you feel where she's cooking breakfast for him. Ethan's there. He kind of pictures his wife and kid a little bit because I mean, that's just, that's the only two people he knows that in that situation that would happen. But uh, she's just a refreshing character. That is another little burst of hope because mm-hmm. that's what he needs is hope. Because all he all he had now is this, this hopelessness, this darkness. So having someone that was as hopeful, as purposeful as uh, Anna was someone that needed to spark that last little bit into Robert, so mm-hmm. that he could continue going for what he needs to do. And she again was very very. She's very religious, and he he obviously the first time she even says brings up religion, Robert just knocks it down, saying no, there's too much. All this bad stuff happened. There's no religion here mm-hmm. there's no like he's listed off the numbers statistically and said if there's a god why did that happen right and it goes back to one of those flashbacks where right before his wife and daughter board the helicopter they pray together and two minutes later they're dead um and so you understand his disdain for religion you understand his doubt and you understand his his anger 
towards a god or towards a lack of a god in this in that moment uh but through anna through um, her optimism he does come around um it's interesting it's an interesting parallel we talked about robert as a savior earlier and how he was sort of heralded as a savior for the people of new york city and the world but here he is on his deathbed he's almost gone and in a ray of light bathing over everything anna appears and she becomes his savior uh it's just interesting that she appears in this this bath of light uh much like christ presumably would um it's just a, a cool parallel that one savior is saved by another one yeah very much so and i and that's just again that's just speaking of anna's characters a refreshing light into robert's life because again he had lost his his vision of his purpose or his vision of his hope of why he started this in the first place Mm -hmm. and she rejuvenates him yeah very much so um the only other character we really get is these dark seekers or the hemocytes whatever you want to call them uh in the books are actually vampires or book singular they're vampires and specifically, we have one sort of head dark seeker. Uh, I called him the rogue dark seeker in my notes. And the first time we see him is when Robert traps his mate, his, this woman, whatever you want to call her, um, and he exposes himself to sunlight. He steps outside and he shows Robert, hey, I am not happy with you right now. You have taken something from me and you better watch out. And he, he exposes himself. He's sitting there baking you see the smoke coming off of his skin um as he is reacting to the uv radiation but it it's interesting that robert interprets that and we interpret it uh, initially as a decline like their mental facilities are gone they are ignoring their basic survival instincts all human behavior is absent they are completely uh, detached from what they were before they were infected but it becomes so much more over the course of the film. Um, it, it's just no, worth noting that Robert is very wrong in his initial reading of these creatures and what they have become. Right. And I, and I think that that is purposeful in the way that we view them in the very beginning, because in the very beginning we just see monsters and we just think they're monsters. And, and the one thing that I think that we're so, uh, desensitized to is the fact that whenever we see kind of a post-apocalyptic kind of zombie movie we're thinking they're mindless creatures with no ability to think now we just think that they're kind of brain dead they're just kind of acting based off of their na- their nature which is they need to eat mm-hmm. so that's all that's all they're that we think they're acting upon and i think that throughout the movie it's pretty obvious that they're not brain dead no they make several actions throughout the movie Climaxing, climaxing towards the end where they kind of attack Robert's kind of safe zone that you can see that they're very strategic and they're very alive and, and their brains are still working because they can easily remember things and act upon them just as humans do. Yeah, the first hint is when they do trap Robert out in the open. They lure him in with Fred and he is snared the exact same way he snared this woman that he kidnapped. And so you see that they're learning, that they are observant, and that they can think for themselves. And that does culminate, as you just mentioned, in that final attack where it is very strategic. They come in waves so that they're not all wiped out at once because they understand 
obviously he's going to have some sort of line of defense. So why would we all go at once if it's just going to kill us all? They come in separate waves and they start preparing for each other and they start tearing off the ceiling and all these sorts of things that are very indicative that these are much more than just brain dead zombies. Um, that is one thing that the book does a little bit better than the film is that, as I said, they're vampires in the book and they're capable of speech. And so they, they actually do, you're a little bit more aware of their higher brain power from the beginning. Um, but I, I kind of like the movie too, in the sense that you have to learn just because they don't talk doesn't mean they're not smart. Um, so it, it's an interesting development that we, we do see them through Robert's eyes for so much of the movie, but then we look back and as we watch things as they happen and as they progress, that they are getting smarter and that they are much more than just zombies. Yeah, very much so. Not, not, and that's, that again is just when the first time you see it, you may not catch it. You have to rewatch it to kind of see the progress or the just growth of those characters themselves. Mm-hmm. And again, the, and the leader kind of, I, I call him kind of the leader mm-hmm. hemocide or what the only reason I call it hemocide is because of the subtitles. Yeah. That I call him hemocide. <laughs> right. That's the only reason I, I call him that. Cause I literally didn't have a name for him. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the leader hemocide just kind of, uh, he's the one that I think is, he reveals the most about those characters than any other of the other ones because we are that's the main focus is that one singular leader and we get to see him react and react to every single action that Robert does towards their people. Mm-hmm. And we'll we'll talk more about the specifics of the Dark Seekers and anything like that in a moment uh, when we talk about talk about relevance. Uh, but let's talk about the music for a minute. Um, what do you have to say about any of the music, whether it's the Bob Marley or whether it's the score by James Newton Howard? Well, one thing I did like is that there's actually a lot of the movie where there's no music. Mm-hmm. And I like the use of no music in this situation. Because, again, we're living in a post, I guess, post-apocalyptic, post-disaster world where they want to put us in his shoes. And, again, he doesn't hear anything. Because mm-hmm. there, there's, no, there's no no outside noise happening because he's all there is. All we hear is the animals, the sounds are just the buildings or anything like that so we literally hear nothing so i enjoy the fact that they actually engage us in the in the environment he's in but i also do like the use of the bob marley music because again that's connecting him kind of revealing more of his character more of his background his family into still they're, they're still ingrained into his life and mm-hmm. he, he, bring, he brings him in through the music that he has and that's kind of his inspiration is connect is using the music to kind of ins- to keep his hope up music um, music is a comfort right okay so when we're out in the world there is no music that because it's an uncomfortable situation there's things hiding in the darkness that want to kill him presumably and in the comfort of his own home where they don't know where he lives he is safe as far as we know as far as he knows he listens to bob marley don't worry about a thing because every little thing is going to be all right and we know how important bob marley is because his daughter's name is marley we know that pretty early on so there's a deep connection between him and this music and it's comfort. It's comforting to him. It, it's something, it's like a mantra to himself where I'm going to think back. I'm going to not worry about a thing. Everything will turn out all right as long as I don't worry about a thing. And when he's telling Anna about Bob Marley later, he starts giving a little bit more of the background and why Bob Marley is so important to him. He talks about how Bob Marley said, you know, the people out there who want to make this world a worse place aren't taking a day off, so why should I? Um, so it just reveals a little bit more into his philosophy on life and why Bob Marley 
was such an influence that he ultimately named his daughter after him. Right. And actually I have that quote literally written down because that is honestly a good, again, character quote about who uh, Robert is and why he's doing his thing. Why what's his inspiration mm-hmm. again? Because he, he knows that every day that goes by is getting worse. Mm-hmm. So he needs to do something to make it better. Right. Um, the score itself is pretty minimal for a lot of the movie. Um, we don't, I don't think, I think the first time we hear music is about 20 minutes into the film. Um, and most of the time when we hear it, it's during flashbacks. Um, like when they're trying to leave and they're getting scanned and there's crowds pressing against the barriers to escape and the military are there. That scene I mentioned earlier where it's just really hopeless situation. There's panic and there's emotions that are running high. It's not like a frenetic score moment it's very uh mournful because this is a sad situation humanity is dying and it's really emulated in the music and we also hear more of that same sort of style during the emergency broadcast the first time we hear it and during sam's death we hear another similar piece of music we do get some of the darker action-based kind of music here and there uh namely during the scene where he tries to commit suicide and he's out on the dock running these creatures over uh but most of the time when we hear the music in this film it's trying to bring up those emotions of despair and loss and sadness and it reminds me a lot again of castaway because castaway um alan silvestri scored that film as he does most of robert zemeckis's films and we don't hear any music in that film, aside from a couple Christmas tunes at the beginning, until he escapes the island. Um, and it it's that same sort of, we don't hear the relief in this film, but it's the same sort of idea where you are taking a highlighted moment of time and emphasizing those emotions even further than they are on their own. Yeah, and uh, especially because, like we talked about, this movie is, again, very lightly scored. Mm-hmm. those moments that the music does come in again it, does, it just brings out the emotion even more because and that that's the purpose of it because in this type in these types of movies the main thing that they're focusing on is the emotion of the character mm-hmm. because in like castaway like this it is the emotion of one character one life that we're focus we're following so they, they want to make they want to emphasize the emotion through the music so they will add those uh depressing or the highlight depressing moments they'll highlight the intense hopeless moments by drawing out longer phrases of just emotional layers of music that just allow us to engage with again what the overall feel of the people are in those hopeless situations over or the overall emotion that robert's feeling in uh the just the the few moments of music that they present us whenever it's actually the present day Mm -hmm. him by himself because again those are very 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 few Right. I, I think that um, you can see a lot of talent in a composer in what they do compose, but also in what they don't, in the moments they choose to keep silent. And because so much of this film is silent, it really overemphasizes in a good way those moments that we do have music. So uh, it's, a, it's a smart director comp- uh, composer choice to leave a lot of a film silent when it's appropriate. And yeah. it is here. Because I think, like kind of like you said, if they did compose most of the movie, a lot of the I think a lot of the emotion would have been gone. Yeah, it would lose a lot of its weight. Yeah. 
Let's go ahead and move into relevance. What is one of your takeaways from this film? Um, so I'll start off with I'll start off with actually the, the heaviest one, uh, and it's the view of monsters in mm-hmm. society. Because I th- we talked, I think this is one thing that we actually talked off off screen mm-hmm. a little. I think a few last week or a few weeks back is kind of the perspective in this movie. Mm-hmm. Because in this movie, and this is also going to tie in the alternate ending. So right. Gonna, this gonna, this is the big discussion for this movie. Yeah. So, uh, this movie, our whole perception is in the eyes of Robert, and his perception is that this disease creates monsters. Mm-hmm. And he, throughout the whole movie, his whole deal is, I need to, I need to heal these monsters. I need to bring back humanity. And the whole movie, we have that same perspective because we're seeing this movie through his eyes. But at the end of the movie, uh, whenever... In, at this point, while well, I'm going to tie in the alternate ending because both me and Chad agree that we agree, we like the alternate ending better. Mm-hmm. If if you have not checked the alternate ending, you need to go see it because we agree that that is the that I think is the better ending of the two. Mm-hmm. You can find it on YouTube, and I'll put it in the show notes. So in the alternate ending, just so just kind of over kind of summarize it. Instead of Robert uh, grasping the grenade, running into the screen and blowing up all the zombies. There is a change of that where the head, uh, dark seeker, dark seeker, hemocide, whatever you want to say, the head dark seeker kind of draws a butterfly on the screen using his breath. And then instead of the butterfly tattoo being on Anna, the butterfly tattoo is now on the female dark seeker that Robert's holding. And the same, quotes happen where it's where it's Marley saying daddy look at the butterfly and then at that moment Robert drops his gun uh asks Anna to open the door and he brings out the female dark seeker to the leader and then the the dark seeker grabs his I guess mate his wife and walks off mm-hmm. uh and, and, I mean is there any other comments you want to add about that no I mean that that's the gist of it and in that moment he reveals that he is their monster that's the whole point of the title. I am legend. Okay. What's a legend we tell our kids? The boogeyman? The some monster in your closet? We have all these these sort of scary stories that we tell our children. And that's basically what he thought of these monsters as. What he thought of these dark seekers as is the monsters in the closet. The, the boogeyman under the bed. But in reality, in that moment, he understands that he is their boogeyman. He is their monster in the closet. In the book, Robert goes around all day long with wooden stakes because they're vampires and he they sleep during the day. So he goes into their homes, he drives stakes through their hearts and he does that all day, every day. And he kills thousands of them. I don't think there's a single moment in this movie where we see these dark seekers attack unprovoked. He's always invading their space. He has kidnapped one of their own. He has done something to them to elicit an attack. And so through that lens, we understand that he, they are, they are terrified of him. And that's why they retaliate in the way that they do. And another powerful thing about the alternate ending is as the uh, leader, uh, Darkseeker, grabs his wife behind him are all the photos that Robert takes of all of the Darkseekers that he killed while testing all of his, all of his serums. Because again, if you look in the, if even in the regular movie, they still show all these pictures. Mm-hmm. It's hundreds of pictures. Mm-hmm. It's a whole wall of pictures. And then in the alternate ending, the last words that Robert says to the, the, the dark series, "I'm sorry," 
mm-hmm. because he realizes that he what all the damage he's done to the, their people and all the damage he's done it but to kind of connect it into the relevance of how, how does what does that mean to us i think that connects so well with present day of what's mm-hmm. going on in life because if you look on the news on social media every day there's someone being prejudiced because of their race their social class their religion who they are and there's whole classes of people that are being judged based off the actions of somebody else mm-hmm. and so whenever we when someone does an action we kind of put that label upon a whole group of people saying this person's like this so they're like this they're they're all awful they all are like this and that is a sad reality to to be in where we label a group of people based off the actions of one person mm-hmm. and that is kind of what this whole thing was in this situation, Robert had a bad taste in his mouth because the outbreak killed his family. So right. he had labeled them as they are the reason why my family is dead. Mm-hmm. I, need to, I need to fix this. So then his whole vengeance is they killed my family. And, and then the same thing for, I mean, same thing for the Darkseekers. The Darkseekers see Robert as a threat because he's killing all his people. And in a way, yes, he's doing that, but he's trying to help them in the same way. Mm-hmm. So there, there, there's a lot of dark, twisted ways that they're perceiving each other, but in the end, they're fighting against each other, clashing each other, and in the actual ending, they kill each other. Right. In the actual ending, the nuance of the title and the understanding is completely lost. We get a voiceover from Anna in the uh, the theatrical ending where she actually says this is his legend or something like that. That's not the point. I mean, the right. book the book doesn't end. The book is different. I, I, I don't want to talk and linger on the book too much. But it's a similar ending where he understands that he is their monster. He has been going around killing them, thousands of thousands of them, and they're terrified of him. And it's the same thing here where he has spent the last 1,000 days of this outbreak hunting, killing, and otherwise just trying to eliminate these creatures and all the while in the darkness they've been forming lives for themselves and building relationships and finding mates and partners and all this kind of stuff and he's trying to get rid of that they have moved on yes they used to be human they're no longer human they have gone beyond that but they still have lives they are still building social relationships they are still capable of advanced thought and strategy and planning as we've seen and as we've talked about in the theatrical ending they just kill each other and in its defense i will say there is something nice in robert's sacrifice and his willingness to uh get to to end his own life to save anna and ethan and give get out the cure i i admire his sacrifice but again it misses the point and the point is he is just as terrifying to these creatures as they are to him yeah so that was kind of one theme takeaway was kind of the connecting it to the social problems that the world is going through today because i Mm -hmm. think that is a huge overlurking problem that is easily translated from this movie to reality and if you look at his speech about bob marley as well everything he's doing is in opposition to that idea of injecting music and love into the world. He says, Bob Marley believed that you could cure racism and hate by, as I just said, injecting music and love into people's lives. Light up the darkness. He's not lighting up the darkness. He's trying to get rid of it. Right. Um, which isn't the same thing. 
we don't want an absence of darkness without darkness there's no significance to light right and so he is just approaching the situation wrong protect the ones you have go out and find the survivor's colony which he does in the end after he has come to this realization about himself and make a life with them make a life with anna make a life with ethan find other survivors and rebuild the human population and then from there, let these dark seekers, let these other creatures that have gone on to another form, of, another form of existence, if you want to call it that, let them have their own lives. And it's about injecting love and music. It's about it's about not destroying. And that's very that's very translated in today's society is mm-hmm. because people take actions in their own hands thinking that they're going to solve something, but really they're creating more problems by hurting people's opinions of them, mm-hmm. and that's that causes just more prejudices between different types of people. Right. Inject love into the world. Um, another big takeaway, um, namely from the beginning of the film, is this idea. It, it's the same thing from Jurassic Park: could versus should science. Um, playing God and taking fate into our own hands. It's not about not trying. Like, should we stop trying to find a cure for cancer? No, that's, we already talked about, that's an evil disease. It's awful. People die from that all the time. And just because this movie portrays a solution that does not turn out well, doesn't mean that we don't try. It's just about knowing our limits as humans. It's about not playing God. It's about finding where the line should be drawn and not going beyond that. Uh, At the end of the film, towards the end of the film, Robert says to Anna, God didn't do this. We did. We have to know where the line needs to be drawn and not go beyond what is granted to us, I suppose. Do you have another way of putting that maybe? Um, Hmm. Not to go. Let's see. Yeah, I would, I would just. I mean, I. I. I mean, I. I would just kind of stop at saying that we. We all have limits. Yeah, we, we, we have all, limits. We have limits. Yeah. And the if we push, if we try to go past those limits, we're going to hurt more than help. I guess you can say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because we're. I mean, obviously, as humans, we are only physically, uh, mentally able to do so much, and then after we reach that limit. If we try to go past it without fully full understanding of what we're doing, it then hurts. And to get into more specifics of it, remember in that initial news broadcast where we find out that they've cured cancer, they did it with the measles virus. And keyword virus, virus spread like wildfire. That's where they went wrong is they tried to do it with a virus. And measles historically has not treated people well. So... It's not that they found a cure to cancer that it was the bad thing. It was the way they went about doing it. They played with fire and they got burned. So that that is the takeaway here. I I don't. It's not to not try and cure cancer. <laughs> don't don't misunderstand right. me. It's to to not. It's to be safe about it. To be careful about it. To not play with things like viruses. <laughs> I suppose. Yeah. And uh, that extends into other things that you can extrapolate on your own. Now, are there any other takeaways? I, I think one of the another, – another theme or just kind of uh, mm-hmm. theme that is very evident throughout the whole movie, and it's, it's trans, it, it goes back and forth from uh, 
good to bad is hope and purpose because mm-hmm. throughout the movie there is your robert is finding his trying to figure out his purpose or actually complete his purpose and using the hope that he has in his family in sam in humanity to complete his purpose mm-hmm. and that the whole transition of that to being hopeless and purposeless back to hopeful and having purpose that whole transition is very evident on his character and his emotions throughout the movie and again it's just it's just showing and anna again it's just a refreshing light to kind of revamp his purpose his outlook his hope and it's just showing that every person is placed where they're at for a reason mm-hmm. like every person is there for a reason and anna anna's purpose she gets it from she's she gets it from god she says that god told her to be here this is my the voice that i listen to you need to listen to god as well and then robert obviously he's not as uh religious but he's he then also just listens to what he needs to, needs to do and he finds his purpose whether it be god telling him whether it be is himself telling him whatever he pulls that power from wherever he wants to believe but um it's just another uh show of this whole movie is about having hope even in the darkest times and knowing that you you have a purpose where you're at and you're there for a reason and i think part of that too is keeping people around you who you can get hope from people who give you hope um robert gives up in the moment where he's lost everyone because he doesn't go out uh, i'm not he, he doesn't have anybody else around him to give him hope but when somebody comes into his life and gives him that hope he is open to it after a little bit of struggle uh but i i just think that the the lesson might be to not give up hope and to further than that find people surround yourself with people who give you further hope than exists in yourself yeah and again like we said our our own personal self has limitations but when whenever you surround yourself with people that are uh what should i, I guess my their their mindset is on that is very optimistic hopeful mm-hmm. that encourages you to be more than what you can be, be by yourself right i agree anything else uh, for themes i mean that was the main main two that i wrote down myself was just kind of the the, the societal connection that this mm-hmm. movie brings and also just the emotional hopeful and purposeful uh connection also connects to definitely and it again to reiterate if you have the dvd or the blu-ray or if you don't go get it and watch the movie with the alternate ending because it will change your viewing of this movie if you think the last third of the movie or so is sort of meh it's because you watch the theatrical cut <laughs> you don't watch the alternate cut because it is it because it is what is true to the theme of the whole rest of the movie um so go check that out again i will find that individual scene and put it in the show notes and with that that is the end of the official 62nd episode of cinescope thanks for being with me here tonight seth i'm glad to be on here again i can't wait for more episodes definitely uh contact for the show facebook.com slash cinescope podcast and at cinescope pod on twitter please it's been a while since we got a rating or review on itunes uh, or apple podcast you can use the new app to do that um, you can email feedback and ideas to the cinescope podcast at gmail.com and you can also use that email to contact me regarding co-hosting if you have a movie that you love or uh, an, an idea for a movie to discuss you can uh, send that to the email address as well. Now, Seth, where can people find you online? 
Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Seth02. That's Seth, the letter O, and the number two. Uh, and other than that, I mean, I'm on Facebook, but I'm, I'm probably not going to add you if I don't know you. <laughs> so Twitter's probably the best place to follow me on social media. Yeah, Twitter's the best place to follow me as well. You can find me at Chadadada. That is C-H-A-D-A-D-A-D-A. You can find me on Facebook, facebook.com slash chad.hopkins. Just let me know that you're a podcast listener. and uh, That way, I just don't think it's some random creepo. And now, you can also listen to my other podcast, An American Workplace, which is an office rewatch podcast that I do with my friend Katie. You can find that where podcasts can be found and at our website, workplacepodcast.com. And all the show notes and all the contact information for this show can be found at thecinescopepodcast.com. And that is all for this week. Thank you, Seth, um, having you on the show. Always a pleasure. Thanks, Chad, again. And thank you, everyone, for listening to episode 62. I'm Chad Hopkins. This was Cinescope, and we'll be back later this week with episode 63. Have fun and celebrate movies. (laughs) 